Welcome back to the show that tells you. You are a quantum computer with free will, articulating universal truth with a finite set of mouth noises. My name is Justin Riddle, and this is episode 20 of the Quantum Consciousness series. In today's episode, we'll be discussing language as ontology. The idea that language is not only fundamental to how we process information in our minds, but to a fundamental description of the universe itself. By the end of today's episode, we'll ask the question, are there universalities to language, or is it entirely dependent on your culture? This episode is available on YouTube, and an audio-only version is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you like what you hear today, then please like this video, subscribe to this channel, leave a comment below, or for the audio listener, write a review. Join me inside the mystery of numbers. Come and huff a metaphysical Zero concepts become objects and then become quantum. Join us for an episode of Quantum Consciousness. Hi, I'm Justin Riddle. I got a PhD in psychology from UC Berkeley, and when I was there, I developed a course on quantum consciousness. And so this series is really an update and extension of that material and produced for a wider, broader audience. In my day job, I'm a cognitive neuroscientist, and I deliver electric and magnetic brain stimulation in human participants in order to better understand the basis of cognitive control and other higher order cognitive functions in neural oscillations and how they become disrupted in psychiatric illness. All right, so today's episode, we'll be talking about language as ontology. And in the previous episode, we talked about language mostly as a form of communication. So today we're gonna to be moving beyond just communication and talking about how language is maybe more fundamental to reality. So I'm gonna start off with uh, a little statement about Noam Chomsky, who was a really fundamental um, pioneer in the science of language. And I saw him give a talk um, on, on YouTube actually. And he was asked, what is the most controversial opinion that you have as a linguist, right? So as someone who studies language their whole life, what is something really controversial that you truly believe? And his answer was that language did not evolve as a means of communication. Language instead evolved as a way that our minds organize and process information. And I think this is really fascinating because it means that even if you know some animals out there in the world don't have the ability to communicate abstract thought to each other, it might be that they still have some basis of, of language within their own mind. And his argument for this is that if language evolved purely for communication, then it would be structured different and our words would be linked more explicitly onto physical objects in our environment. And there's a lot of ambiguity introduced by the way that our language is organized and that ambiguity is great for thinking and for processing information internally, right? For that inner dialogue of your own mind, but it's actually not that effective as communication, or it could be designed to be more effective if it was designed purely for communication. And so what I think this really means is that language is something much more fundamental than we sort of naively think about it, right? It seems to be really core to how our minds are really processing information and our thoughts themselves 
might be inherently linguistic or there might be something that we're doing when we're speaking to each other that we're also doing in our minds more fundamentally when we're processing information. And so I think what this implies or what this sort of leads to is the idea that linguistics is not sort of a luxury science. And so when I was a cognitive science undergraduate major, you know, there, there were these different pillars of cognitive science. And one of them was linguistics. And I kind of naively thought when I was younger that, oh, you know, this is sort of like the one they tacked on. It's not as fundamental to understanding the human mind or to reality. This is sort of something that humans do on top of all the complex things that they're already doing. This is sort of a, a luxury afforded the human mind in higher order, you know, human mammals, right? And so this was really shooken up when I started learning more and more about language and how it seems to be really core to how we process and think about information. So a lot of today's episode is going to be about explaining some of the mysteries involved um, with understanding language and sort of plugging it into this quantum consciousness framework and, and what can we extend beyond, you know, sort of classical frameworks of thinking about language and updating it for uh, this modern quantum era that we live in. And so one of the, the questions we're going to get to by the end of this episode is really this idea of, is language about articulating these arbitrary associations between things, or is language geared towards tapping into these universal truths and these bigger picture meaningful constructs and then conveying these meaningful constructs. And, and the conclusion for today will be that, you know, it's a little bit of both. So I'm going to start off by talking about the three world model. And so if you've been watching this series uh, before now, you'll you'll be familiar with this. But as a recap, for those of you who aren't familiar, the three world model is proposed by Roger Penrose, you know, most recently, but it, it's, you know, sort of been proposed by many different philosophers throughout, you know, throughout human history. Um, and the basic premise is that there is a physical world comprised of digital information. It's reducible, it's measurable, it's sort of that base level. And we relate this to the measurement phenomenon in quantum mechanics, where you measure, reduce, you have sort of this digitization of, of information. And then there's this second world, which is the mental world, the world of cognition, of human consciousness, the world that you and I spend our time you know, existing within for the most part. And we make the analogy that this is akin to a superposition in quantum mechanics and a quantum computer. And it sort of has this uh, defined boundary, but it has this coherent self that is sort of emergent. There's this single wave function, this single self created within the mental world. And that is identical to who we are in our thoughts and experiences. And then there's this third world, which goes beyond sort of the mind-body dualism, and it introduces this triality, um, similar to mind-body-spirit, but the, the idea here is this is mathematics, meaning, things that go beyond any individual, right? So mathematics does not belong to any one person. It exists as sort of this higher level, this universal truth level, right? So while the physical world is reducible, it's measurable, the platonic world, this third world, is universal. It taps into some, some platonic truth. Um, and then we propose this is linked to potentially entanglement, which is this sort of spooky action at a distance where multiple quantum, quantum systems or quantum computers can be 
um, sort of interacting with each other in this sort of spaceless, timeless way, similar to how math and concepts are sort of spaceless and timeless. Um, and then and then in a previous episode, I related this to fractal computation, so go check out that if you're interested. So we're left with sort of this mind, body, spirit, reality. So now when we hop into the uh, linguistics framework, uh, David Chalmers has some really great work talking about you know what is what is linguistics and what does it mean to communicate between two people and it and it sort of relates to his metaphysical model of the world and so what he says is you know there's two first person observers here two mental world containers and they're communicating with each other and they have two types of information that they're com you know conveying to each other and he calls this the dual aspects of information and so information has a syntactical level, physical, digital, measurable level, and a semantic level, which taps into this more universal meaning um, space. So the basic idea is as you speak, you're mapping these arbitrary sound waves onto different words, and then those words map into bigger, more universal meaning, right? So you have syntax, you have semantics. And as I'm speaking, the words move through the air, they're transmitted to you. There are these digital information packets transmitted from one person to another. And then once it hits you, you translate that into this platonic universal meaning. And so there's this intention structure or this mapping between the physical world into the platonic world. And this is your particular way that you map words from physical into platonic. And so there might be some differences. When I say the word quantum, you know, it's kind of a buzzword. It might have been overused in our culture. And so you might have a different concept to what the word quantum means than what I think that word means, right? And so our intention structure, you know, we have the same word at the physical syntactical level, but it's mapping into a different semantics, a different level of meaning. And so David Chalmers then from this sort of phenomena of the, the practicality of communication, talks about how there are, similar to these dual aspects of information, there's sort of two levels of intention which are conveyed by our language. So when I'm speaking to you, I have a primary intention, and this is what do I think that my words mean to you? And I'm trying to convey some sort of model or meaningful construct from my mind into your mind, and that is my primary intention. However, when I transmit that information to you, it gets filtered through your own experience. It goes through the physical realm of digital information. It hits your mind. It gets processed through your experiences, through that intention structure mapping of syntax onto semantics. And then when it hits your semantical, meaningful level, it might have a slightly different meaning from what I meant it to mean. And this is the secondary intention. So primary intention, I have a meaningful construct. I'm trying just to download that into your mind, but I have to go through this physical realm, this physical medium. And so I might have some secondary, you know, things that happen or some secondary outputs of meaning that I don't actually mean to send to you. And so this is the secondary intention. It's sort of a accidental implications of what I'm saying. You know, when you accidentally offend someone by saying the wrong thing, even though in your mind you're trying to 
you know, convey some meaningful concept to them, but you say it in the wrong way, that secondary intention is picked up and it gets mapped into the wrong meaningful uh, construct or structure. And so that structure of meaningful mapping is misaligned and you end up offending them and there's some conflict that arises. Um, however, your primary intention was, was pure. All right, so this relates to Chalmers' concept of naturalistic dualism, where he kind of pitches, and this is sort of me plugging his words into this three-world model framework, that there is this semantic level and this syntactical level, and there's an impasse where the, the semantic level, the syntax level, are fundamentally different domains, right? So you could come from a different culture speaking a different language, and every single mouth noise that you're making is entirely different. So you could have a 100% different set of sounds and a totally different set of syntax, but you're still mapping onto the same um, semantics. And so the semantics are universal and the syntax is particular and culturally dependent. And so there's a naturalistic dualism where these are like fundamental opposites. These are like paradoxically doing entirely different orthogonal things to each other. And there is a bridge or a routing between the two. And through experience, we can we can build that mapping between between those two different um, levels. All right, so I find that, that David Chalmers' framing of this naturalistic dualism is, is really fascinating. And I don't necessarily say that there's an impasse between the uh, platonic and the physical world. And maybe there's a little bit more to the mental world, you know, to more flesh out that triangle that, that Roger Penrose is, is enthusiastic about and not cutting off one of the sides of the triangle. All right, so Susan Blackmore is a philosopher, a psychologist, and she has this TED Talk that I really enjoyed called Genes, Memes, and Teams. And so I'm going to briefly explain that. And so the idea here is if you were to create a language for each of these different realms, these different worlds, what would it look like? And so let's assume that language is not just communication. But language is the fundamental sort of like code that each of these different worlds are programmed in, right? And so language as programming or as like the units of meaning or the units of how we process things within each of these different worlds. So in a previous episode, I pitched to you that there's digital computers, quantum computers, and fractal computers. And then with your digital computer, what does the code look like for you know, programming that digital computer? What does the code look like for programming the quantum computer and the code look like for programming the fractal computer, right? And so Susan Blackmore pitches that there are sort of three types of information that are being shared and processed in biology. And so at the more fundamental level, she uses genes as the example. And I think her motivation for using genes is that you have ACTG, right? You have these simple um, sequences of amino acids, and those are the only sequences that are possible. And so DNA is a lot like this digital realm, right? In, in a digital computer, we have binary, zeros and ones that need to be programmed. And that's how we write out our code. Here, biology is a bunch of, of genes. It's a bunch of ACTG patterns. And I, I think there's other sorts of, you know, physical patterns that, that are present in biology. 
But genes are a pretty good example, right? Because they, they seem the most similar to digital programming. And so she gives the example that genes are sort of reliably representing a single structure or some content in that sequence or that pattern. And so when you want to copy it, you want to like straight up copy the exact pattern that you have there. And so in the gene level, you know, DNA into RNA, then it gets processed into proteins. There's sort of this one-to-one -one mapping of, of this really explicit pattern that needs to be, to be mapped to process this information. And, you know, whether or not DNA works exactly like that, you know, whatever. But digital computers are, are very similar to that, right? When you want to transmit information, you need these zeros and ones. You need this very grounded um, reducible, measurable, unchanging physical medium that you want to copy, right? What does quantum information look like? And if you wanted to copy or share quantum information, what would that be like? And so what's interesting is that wave functions and quantum computers have what's called the no cloning theorem, right? So you can't take a wave function and perfectly reproduce another wave function identical to that original wave function, just sort of a principle of quantum mechanics and essential to quantum computation. And so Susan Blackmore says that memes are the next level of information sharing. And I'm drawing the association here to quantum computation, but maybe if you wanted to share or copy information in a quantum computer, you couldn't actually copy that wave function and so what you copy is some sort of motif or schema or some sort of meme of that wave function of that quantum computational state. And so digital computation is shared via direct copying, but quantum information is shared via like memification or via sharing of a motif or a schema rather than that direct data, that direct information. And so the language of a quantum computer might be sort of different motifs, different schemas that are being presented or, or processed or shared, and you're not necessarily having that strict digital information. And of course, there's a digital input and output from the quantum computer, but within the quantum computational phase of the quantum computer, the idea would be that the language or the, the formalization or the programming at that level would be a series of, of motifs or schemas um, maybe akin to something like a meme. All right, and then the final level she calls teams. And I think this is sort of a made up word uh, that's a, an extension beyond memes, but I think it's like a technology unit of meaning. You know, if you take meme to be the base word somehow related to meaning, then a team is a technology unit of meaning. And I think she's ascribing some sort of... Uh, mystical level to technology to some degree. And uh, I prefer to think of this as something more universal. But basically how she describes it is that the team is directly related to meaning, right? It is a unit of meaning. There is no transformation required. And you're sort of tapping into some sort of universality here. And so my pitch here is that the fractal computer level is going to have teams is, is what is what their units of programming. The language within a fractal computation would be a series of meaning units, right? And this wouldn't be digital information, right? It wouldn't just be like a straight digital copying. 
and it wouldn't quite be a schema or a motif because it is universal. And so the pitch is that the fractal computer level taps into the scale of the entire universe, tapping into the pilot wave, the entanglement web, these, these sort of higher order concepts within quantum mechanics where you're hitting this universality level. And so the team is a, a sort of word or a bit of language within that, that greater universal context. So genes, memes, and teams lining up within the three world model, the three computational model. All right, the next topic for today and final topic for today is this debate between the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis and universal grammar. And so this is sort of one of those like fundamental uh, arguments or paradoxes within the linguistic field. And so I'll go through each of them in turn. So the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis basically states that language is entirely dependent on culture. It's a series of arbitrary associations. From your experience, you build a system of words and a system of associations. And so your language reflects the experience of the people within that culture. And so you'll have different cultures and they'll have different words. And, you know, if it's one culture, maybe their culture emphasizes some aspect of reality. And so there's an abundance of words and, and systems of meaning and logic around this concept. And then another culture emphasizes different concepts. Um, and there's different ways that people think about different, you know, aspects of reality. And so if one culture is thinking about things in a certain way, the language is going to reflect the thought process of that group of people. And people thinking about it in a different way, it's going to have a different association. Um, and one example that I heard from some research was like in Spanish, you have things like the pencil broke itself, right? You can have a, a sentence that says the pencil broke itself. But then in English, you have this noun verb association. So the pencil broke itself doesn't quite uh, seem right in common English grammar. You need to have, you know... Joey broke the pencil. And so you need to like blame the pencil breaking on Joey. And so you'll have sort of these cultural differences where within culture, maybe you're not so readily ascribing fault to some negative occurrence, but in another culture, you need to have an agent acting upon and creating that, that negative occurrence. And so there's like repercussions socially or, or culturally of these different ways of talking about situations and events. Um, in the really extreme example, uh, the movie Arrival, which is a really great sci-fi movie. I'm going to spoil the ending for you. So if you don't want to hear this, skip ahead probably 30 seconds. But essentially the idea in Arrival is they, they use this superior wharf hypothesis. And they say, what if you met an alien species and they had their own language? And so when you're learning the language of this alien species... You know, in the movie, they're really struggling to grapple with what, how does this language work? You know, we have all these symbols. It's this weird circle with little, you know, squiggles coming out of this circle. And when they finally crack the code, the main, uh, yeah, the main character is this linguist. And, and she cracks the code and she figures out the language. And when she figures out the language, she, it shifts her worldview, right? And this is really like core to the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. And I think they even mentioned Sapir-Whorf in the, in the movie. Once she uses the language in her own mind, 
her mind starts thinking within those linguistic processes and suddenly in the movie this is big spoiler she like gains the ability to time travel which you know i think is absurd and like totally ridiculous but it's pretty fun so she learns how to time travel by tapping into this language, uh, this way of thinking about language. So I think, you know, metaphysically, the world within the movie is that mental time travel is possible fundamentally, but we're like, we don't access that power that we have within our minds. And so this language is a way of like unlocking your mind's power to time travel. But, you know, for the context of this episode, the idea is that the language that you're using reflects your thought processes and then it can then, you know, change how your mind is operating, how your mind is working. So I think this is like a really cool idea within uh, this really superior wharf related hypothesis. Um, some other things that fall out of this are embodied metaphors. So we have a lot of metaphors which are strictly based on our experience, right? Up is better, up is more. So if you get more cookies and they're in a stack, there's more cookies, you're more happy, right? So up is associated with happiness, down is associated with not happiness. Um, dirty is immoral, right? So if you got scolded when you were a kid, if you got dirty, now you associate immorality with the concept of being dirty, right? Like in the mud, which, you know, all of these are somewhat arbitrary associations. The future is moving forward. Right, because we walk forward all of our lives, the future is the direction that we're walking. And if you walk backward, you're going into the past, right? These are all just associations built out of our experience, but none of these associations are necessarily the way that it needs to be, you know? Love is warm. That's because when we got hugged, we felt love. And when we were left alone, we felt cold. And so love is warm and hate is cold. Right. All of these are just based on our physical bodies and how we experience the world. Right. So this is sort of that physical world mapping into the mind, these embodied metaphors that come really naturally to us. All right. Shifting gears. What is the platonic framework of understanding language? This is universal grammar. And this is another uh, Noam Chomskyanism. But the idea is when you're, you know, born for the most part, we are born and we have five fingers on each hand or four fingers and a thumb on each hand. And so why would your brain and your mind be any different? Um, you have language and it's the equivalent of a hand getting grown um, with, with particular specifications. Your brain has the capacity for language because there's some sort of like structure in your mind which is capable of processing language. And so there was this big hunt for, you know, is there a universal grammar section of the brain? And can we figure out what it is and then figure out what that code for language, you know, sort of is. And if you've been watching this series, you know, this very much feels like the attempt to take mathematics and reduce it down into a series of first order logic prepositional phrases. Can we take math and then break it down into its basic components and then derive all of math? The same thing has been happening with language. Can we take language, map it down to its fundamentals, and then end up with a pure description of what language is? Um, and there's some, some hilarious you know, examples of people thinking this is an easy problem 
and then saying, all right, I'm going to go solve, you know, oh, let's just figure out how language works. We, we can probably figure it out over this summer. And then it's like this unknown, mysterious problem. And I think what this reminds me of is Roger Penrose's idea of non-computation. So he has this, this pitch that children can just count the natural numbers. There's this essence of numerology. One, two, three, four. We just know what those things are. We also understand geometry, parallel lines, perpendicular lines, circles, squares. We have this sort of platonic idea of mathematics and of geometry, but it's so hard, shockingly, to ground it into simple principles. And it seems like it should be easy because it's so easy for us to do it. It's so easy for us to count and to think about geometry that we think it must be something simple, but ironically or confusingly, it's not. And I think language is very similar to this where we think it should be something really easy to lock in, figure out the details of, and yet it defies understanding. It defies simple construction. And there's all these attempts to, to kind of ground language or ground mathematics into simple first order principles and they always fail. There's always exceptions. There's sort of unknowns. You know, how do we learn language so fast in such a short period of time? That is a fundamental mystery. And so my suggestion to you is that it's the platonic world. We're tapping into this fractal level, this higher order meaning, this entanglement web, and there's something ineffable, there's something archetypal that we're tapping into. And it's really hard to articulate what that really is but we all understand it, but we can't really articulate it, you know? And so this on a metaphoric level is explanatory metaphors, right? So an explanatory metaphor is where you take something concrete in your experience and you map it onto something ineffable, archetypal, platonic, right? And so a simple example is love is a journey. And so there's all these ways where you can relate love to a journey We've all gone on a journey and, you know, there's a vehicle for that love or for that journey. It's a car is the relationship. There's bumps in the road on the journey of love. There's passengers within the love journey. Um, you're moving too fast. You're going too slow. You know, there's all these like journey metaphors related to love. And so we're trying to tap into this, you know, this big concept of love, like, please define love for me. Your definition is going to fail, but we all know what it is. And so we use these explanatory metaphors to tap into platonic truth. So similar to how embodied metaphors sort of come out of the physical world naturally and then hit our minds, we're using the physical world to then try to map onto the platonic world. And this other direction is sort of the, uh, the explanatory metaphor angle. All right, so what is going on here? How do we make sense of universal truth versus cultural embodiment, right? And I think this, you know, I think I've said it previously in this podcast or in this uh, series that this is the core paradox of reality. The idea that everything is arbitrary and culturally founded versus archetypal and universal, right? And these are at odds with each other. And in a weird way, they're defined paradoxically with respect to each other. Universality is defined as not arbitrary and particular. And then this like, oh, everything's culturally dependent is defined relative to not being universal. 
and maybe this sounds abstract, but I think this comes up in our daily lives all the time where people say, you know, oh, you couldn't possibly understand my experience because I have such a unique cultural background. And I think that that is 100% true. And also it's 100% universal and archetypal, you know? And this is the paradox that something could be infinitely arbitrary and infinitely universal, right? These are, these are the fundamentals of the paradox that we're grappling with is that if everything was truly arbitrary, then we could never make sense to each other. There would be such a cultural divide, one, between different cultures, but two, just between individual people, where you would never, ever be able to like touch someone's mind with metaphor. There would always be an impasse. There would always be a barrier to like mind melding with another person. But I think we have a lot of shared experiences of mind melding, of really seeing eye to eye with each other and tapping into these universal meanings with each other. If you've ever had a really productive, profound conversation with someone, your minds touch and your, your platonic values align and you can really see eye to eye with that person. And I think we can have these breakthroughs with anyone. I don't think there's ever a cultural barrier. If you can figure out a vocabulary to communicate, you can tap into these universal meaningful truths. And also at the same time, there is this, this like infinite dimension of being separate from each other and having entirely unique experiences where there's something that we can't ever really articulate about how we're so different from each other, you know? So I think this is really, really core here is that you have this realm of universality and this realm of particulars and you are somewhere in the middle. If we embrace this, this quantum three world model I've been pitching, there's a platonic universality realm. There's this physical, digital, cultural realm and all of our minds are mapping between the two and we can touch universal truth, but we need to build our language and, and actively communicate with each other to start accessing those higher levels. And maybe there's some barriers to, to truly understanding each other, but yeah, or maybe it's a paradox and maybe, and maybe we can fully understand each other and we never will simultaneously. So I'll leave you with that for the day. I uh, hope you had a, a fun time thinking about language and linguistics at this fundamental level. And I'll talk to you again real soon.